Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. We're continuing on in like a two-week mini-series in Mark chapter 9, talking about the lowest place. And we've got this two-week theme that's been going on, and I think there's a, a, a sermon slide for, for this. It's this idea of moving from conflict to peace. We've been moving from conflict to peace. So uh, Mark 9 begins this section as they're going to Capernaum, but they kept silent, for on the way to Capernaum, the disciples had argued with one another about who was the greatest. They were arguing together. And then Jesus, at the end of this teaching in Capernaum, he says, and be at peace with one another. And he left there and went to the region of Judea. And there's, uh, Jesus is walking to Capernaum. He's telling his disciples, I'm going to die. And his disciples, as they're walking, are arguing with one another about who's the greatest. Who's going to take over once Jesus dies? Like, 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 they're totally missing the point. Okay, they're completely missing what Jesus was telling them, that he's going to die and rise again, and he's going to take the lowest place to serve them. And here they are trying to argue about who's the greatest. And Jesus asked them, what are you guys talking about? And he says they were all quiet and they were shy because they didn't want to share that they had been talking about the fact about who is the greatest. But, and they get to this house in Capernaum, and Jesus literally sits down, and he teaches them these three sections of teaching, and then they leave. And so that's what we're in the middle of today. So we looked at the first section last week about if you want to be first, you're going to be the last and the servant of all. And this week we're talking about serving from the lowest place. And that's from a, t- a title for our sermon today is serving from the lowest place. And how as we take a posture of humility, it actually leads us into unity. It actually, it actually kills conflict when we consider others better than ourselves, when we can take the lowest place and service to others, what we actually find is that it promotes a lot of unity in our church and around us. So uh, we're going to talk about three points today. Um, In the lowest place, there are no inner circles. In the lowest place, you avoid tripping others. And in the lowest place, your faith is preserved. So Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 38. This is what it says as we get to our first point in the lowest place. There are no inner circles. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This is God's word. Let's pray as we begin. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you have taken the lowest place as our model, as our example, and as our substitute. I pray as we look at the text today that you would help us see what it looks like to serve from the lowest place, to promote unity in our church body and in the wider world around us. And Lord, we thank you that you have entered into the world. And as we enter into the season of Advent, waiting for your arrival, anticipating it, Lord, help this Christmas to be a Christmas where we truly consider what it means that you came to save us. We love you, Jesus, and be with us during this time today. In your name, amen. So 
like I said, the scenario is Jesus just finished talking to them and rebuking them because they said, who is the greatest? And Jesus says, well, actually, if you want to be the greatest, you've got to be the servant of all. And then right away, John speaks up. Like in the middle, they're literally sitting in a house and Jesus is like, have childlike faith in me. And they're sitting in a house and John pipes up and says, hey, we saw this guy and he's casting out demons in your name and we're not happy about it. And he says, this is what he says. He says, um, and we tried to stop him. Why? Because he was not following us. Us? How many of you guys have done a group project where you have done all of the work and then the person shows up and like reads the script that you gave them and you get an A and they say, we did it. How many of you have done that? Okay. Okay. If you're not raising your hand, you're the person that shows up late that did none of the work. Okay. All right. So this is the disciples. They're saying they're not following us. Really? Us? It's like this complete lack of self-awareness. They're assuming the same authority as Jesus. They're talking to Jesus saying, well, they're not following us as if they're somehow equal with the Son of God, the Savior of the world, God incarnate. They're saying they're not following us. You're like, wait a minute, this, there's something here that doesn't quite fit. And again, this is right after Jesus says he's going to die, right after they're rebuked for being selfishly focused on who's the greatest. And the very next thing is, is that they say this person should be following us. That's what's going on here. It's bonkers. But what's going on underneath the surface? This is the deal. The disciples are showing us something about how they're thinking. They think there is an inner circle of trusted advisors. They think that these healings and these exorcisms and these demonstrations of spiritual power should be underneath their authority. What they're doing is they're trying to co-opt Jesus' authority by using that we language trying to say, well, Jesus is powerful, and we're close to Jesus. We're in the inner circle. And so his authority is our authority because we're in proximity to him. And then this guy is on the outs. We don't know him. He's unknown. He's not even named in the Bible. And so trying to co-opt Jesus' authority for themselves. And then they're trying to rebuke someone who's engaging in spiritual authority on Jesus' name and in Jesus' behalf. This is bonkers. Now, what's also ironic about this is literally in the same chapter, the disciples could not exercise a demon. <laughs> this guy was doing something the very disciples couldn't do just a few verses beforehand. And I think it's kind of ironic. They struggled to demonstrate spiritual power for the freedom of people under spiritual oppression. But yet this unknown guy who's following Jesus in a simple faith is casting out demons in Jesus' name seeing, engaging in spiritual warfare. And what we see, again, second set of teaching right here, is the disciples are not in the lowest place. And what they're saying is this unknown person doesn't look like us. We don't know him. We might not even know his name. And he's doing things that we can't do. Side note, how often do we look at someone who's better than us and criticize them? I know, I do it. I struggle with it, Right? It's a human nature to take a position of superiority even over someone who's doing a better job than we are. And the disciples are exposing this. That's what's going on underneath the surface. And we see that Jesus is promote that Jesus in his name this person this unknown 
healer is engaging in spiritual warfare on Jesus' behalf. He has this childlike faith. He's unnamed in the Bible. And yet he's doing an incredible work of God that disciples are trying to hinder because they're jealous and they don't know him. And then we see something else that's very interesting. So they're talking about this really overt demonstration of power. And Jesus says, don't, don't hinder him. But then he also says, whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So Jesus goes, the disciples are bringing up this massive demonstration of power, saying, well, this guy should be underneath our authority. Jesus takes it so low. He says, even if you do the most basic thing for someone else, you won't lose a reward. What he's saying is, whether you're exercising demons or you're literally giving a cup of water, there is equal value in God's kingdom to that. Why? Because it's not you doing the work. It's God's work through you. What he's saying is about the posture of your heart, not the perceived impact of your ministry. That's what he's saying. And so he's drawing a comparison between this massive, I've never exercised a demon before, that's pretty incredible, right? But I've certainly give, some, give someone a glass of water. And what he's saying is, it doesn't matter the perceived impact. It matters your heart, your childlike faith underneath of it, taking the lowest place like this unknown person was doing and the disciples are trying to hinder. So what does this mean for you and for me? Well, I think this means a few things. One, I think this means that the kingdom of God has open boundaries, not closed boundaries. And I just think about as it relates to our friends here in Clarksville. Uh, let me just be really clear. There are good churches here in Clarksville that are doing good work for God. We do not have a handle or a corner on the gospel in such a way that no other church here in Clarksville has. I think that we're doing a really good thing here at Redeeming Hope. I think we've got a good culture. We've got a unique thing here as a church family that I love. I love coming to this church. I don't know about you guys, but I love showing up on Sunday morning. This is the church literally I've always dreamed of being a part of. And I love what we're doing. And we're different. But that doesn't mean that people who are different than us don't also get the gospel and are not also doing good things. And so I think that this actually leads us to say that the kingdom of God is open. Like God's doing a work in Clarksville and other people's churches might not look like ours. And maybe we wouldn't want to go to that church, but that doesn't mean that that church isn't doing good things and we can't celebrate what God is doing elsewhere in Clarksville. And I think that also applies to other Christians in Clarksville. There are other Christians that have different maybe values, different opinions on secondary issues than we do. But we see the kingdom of God is expansive. God is doing a work in the world around us. And we can celebrate what God is doing. Where Jesus is being preached, where people are coming to faith, where people are walking in freedom from bondage, we can celebrate that. Even if maybe those people don't believe all the same things that we do. As long as Jesus is being preached, we can celebrate. And, and I do th wanna make a note on this. I've said this before, um, but oftentimes the place where you first truly learn the gospel, the culture in which you first learn the gospel, you not only adopt the gospel, but you also adopt the culture of that place as well. Let me explain. The first place that I went to where I really understood the gospel really deeply, the freedom that Christ brought into my life, um, that church was filled with a bunch of artists. Okay, like 50% of the people were like artsy-fartsy people that like literally made art for a living, all right? And so, and the lead pastor of that church was a professionally trained artist. 
And so we'd have custom art made for the church and all our sermon series. And we met in a cafeteria gym and we were doing all this crazy stuff and putting curtains in weird places. And we were doing all this stuff because it's a bunch of artists there. And so we had this incredible value on art and beauty. So when I left that culture, that church culture, where I really got the gospel, but I also learned about the value of beauty and art and those things, the next church I went to was gospel-centered, but they didn't have the same value of art. It was like in a suburb of Nashville, right? And so like nobody cared about a special weird art thing that you were doing and the significance of that. And so my first reaction was, they must not get the gospel because it doesn't look like the first church that I went to. Does that make sense? Am I being clear here? Like, and I just want to caution us here at Redeeming Hope. Like, if you came to Redeeming Hope and you're like, oh my gosh, I've never truly seen the gospel expressed this way before. I just want to caution you. Filter out what's cultural and what's gospel here. Because I don't want you to go to the next church and, critic- and unnecessarily criticize churches because they don't meet at a YMCA. Or they don't have a redhead that's a pastor. Or they don't like love wrestling. Like, you know, like, you know, I just, I just want to caution us to like separate the culture of what we're doing here, which is good, which is valuable. Like we support the wrestling community because of Pastor Derek and his children and the incredible blessing that they are in that community. So we support that. That's part of our culture, right? Um, we love smoking meats. I need to say that clearly, not just smoking. We love smoking meats, okay? And valuing good food and, and like enjoying our groups around that. Not all groups have to have that, right? So I just want you to separate out the culture from the gospel so that when you look at other churches or you go or you move and you go to a different church, you're still valuing the essence of the gospel even if it doesn't look like what we're doing here. Does that make sense? The, the kingdom is wide open, and I just want to encourage us in that way. Uh, second thing I think this teaches us is that there is no distinction of service. Exercising a demon or giving a cup of cold water. Like Jesus is equating the two of them. Like if you do this, if you do that, you're still going to receive the beauty of God's kingdom coming into the world. And see, again, the least thing done in service of Christ has infinite value because it's not you doing it. It's God doing it through you. So whether you're setting up the chairs or making the coffee or preaching a sermon, like it is all the same in God's eyes. It's offering up what you have to God. And it's his empowerment to click the iPad to advance the slides. Like it's his grace that allows us to do this just as much as it is to for have me to open up and study the scriptures, right? Like we all are a family and we're bringing what God has given us to the table And in God's eyes, and it should be in our eyes, there's an equal value because it's all empowered by God. Um, There's no classes of Christians. There's no, we say this a lot, there's no junior Holy Spirit. So an eight-year-old or an 80-year-old has the same Holy Spirit if they're a follower of Jesus. That means that our children can hear from God. That means our children can hear his voice and respond to it. That means that you don't have to have seminary degrees You don't have to be highly educated. You don't have to know Greek or Hebrew to have value and contribute to what we're doing here and contribute to to speaking God's word to other people around you. Like, we want to celebrate that. There are no classes of Christians. And then finally, there is no, we don't serve from a position of authority. We serve others. We serve our church. We serve people outside of our church from a position of weakness, humility, and dependency. 
And I think I told you last week about my terrible, awful, no good past 10 days, right? The car accident, the breaking of the finger, all these other things. And, you know, I've gotten into a habit this week of, yes, you showed, yeah, it was the flamingo. I was bouncing around with the flamingo, playing the flamingo game that I broke my finger at, at the Hope Youth thing. Um, but, you know, you see, I've just been getting in this habit, and it's been really helpful for me. If I wake up, and I did it this morning too, and I, before I put my feet on the ground, I wake up and I say, I am weak. This is where I wake up. I don't wake up in a position of strength. I don't wake up in a position of having my stuff together. I wake up in a position of weakness. And if I just say, I'm weak, like that just reminds my prideful, arrogant, assuming heart. Just like the disciples. Have. The same heart of the disciples is the same heart as you and me. All right? We're, we're all the same. We want to assume. <laughs> we want to assume we've got our stuff together right? And if we just wake up, we say, you know what? I don't have it together and I'm okay with that. Like, I just got to be okay with being weak. And what happens is when we serve others from a place of humility and weakness and dependency, what this does is it fosters unity. Because again, what did we say before? What you're doing, the service, the ministry, serving others is not powered by you. And so you can be humble. You don't have to compare. You don't have to say that person's doing it better. You just say, well, God stewarded that person a specific gift set and specific things for what he has them to do. And he's stewarding to me things because it's not them versus me in terms of serving. It's like all God's power. So then comparison just doesn't make sense anymore. And it also fosters generosity because guess what? Nothing that you and I have is ours. Everything is his. So then it's like, okay, my skill set, my time, my energy, my effort, my money, my resources, my network, my connections. Nothing I have is mine. Everything is his. So then I can be generous with it because it's not mine in the first place. And finally, and I think this is something I was praying about as I was working on the sermon, is that when you serve others from a humble place, it actually eliminates anxiety, right? Because the outcome is not on your shoulders. It's not like if you're better at doing something, then it will be better. Because guess what? This is the beauty of the gospel. We all stink and Jesus doesn't. Okay, so he gives us his power. He gives us his strength. So then the outcome isn't dependent on us. It's God's will. So when we serve, we set up the chairs. We were this morning. It's like, okay, we walk in, we set up the TV. TV broke. It's a smaller TV. This is our backup TV, right? It's like, okay, we're in a position of weakness. We're just thankful we have a TV today. Thank you, Dom. Thank you. Thank you guys for putting this together, right? Like, like, we just, we serve from a position of weakness. Of course the TV broke. It's a miracle it hasn't broken the past four months, right? <laughs> and so if we approach life like that, we just aren't anxious anymore. Because then it's like the outcome is the Lord's, not ours. It's, it's under his responsibility and authority. So, first point. In the lowest place, there are no inner circles. All right? The kingdom is wide open. Secondly, we find in the lowest place, you avoid tripping others. So let's go to verse 42. Jesus this is the third part of Jesus' teaching. He says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, to understand what Jesus is getting at here, we need to understand two words. What is the word sin? What does that mean? And what is he talking about little ones? What is sin and what's the little ones? So, to sin is the word, you, the word here for to sin is where we get our English word to scandalize. Okay, that's the same, it's kind of the same word. And it's not about a specific action, but rather it's talking about causing someone to stumble or trip 
or to disable someone's discipleship. That's what he's talking about here. It's to stumble. It's like you're walking and you see a little kid walking in front of you and you stick your foot out to try to trip them as they as they as they're running down the hall at the YMCA when we tell the kids not to run, right? Like that's what they're doing. It's like, see, I told you so. It's putting your foot out to trip someone. That's what that word means. Okay. Now who's Jesus talking about here? When I was reading this text, at first it just seems like he's talking in general about children, right? Like it seems like he switches the topic. But it doesn't actually fit the context. Who are the little ones here? Now remember, Jesus is teaching this whole teaching with a little boy sitting next to him. It's probably one of Andrew's, one of Andrew's relatives. Because at the beginning, we talked about this last week, he says, if you're going to be, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be first, you got to be last and the servant of all. And it said, and he called one of the little children that was running around the house and said, come sit next to me. He puts his arm around him. It says, receive a childlike faith. That's what he said. And that's what's setting us up. When he says, receive the child, receive a childlike, dependent, submissive faith in him. And what he's trying to tell the disciples is you got to be childlike. You got to be childlike, depending on me. But now he says, anyone who follows me is a child. Not just the disciples, not just the inner circle. What he's saying is that anyone who follows me is like a child and we need to care for them. Who he's talking about here is that unknown person who is casting the demon out. That's what he said. That person is operating in a childlike faith. That person is humble and dependent and walking in power, engaging in spiritual warfare. Don't trip him up. Because remember, that's what the disciples were doing. Stop, stop doing this. You're not underneath our authority. What they're trying to do is limit him. They're trying to trip him up. The very disciples who were supposed to be low and childlike, because they thought there was a hierarchy, they're trying to hinder this guy's ministry. So what he's saying is don't trip up the little ones. Don't trip up those who are walking in faith, who are walking in childlike dependency. He's not talking abstractly about children. He's speaking directly to the disciples and warning them that they are causing others around them to be tripped up. He says, don't do that. When in fact, the disciples need to take the lowest place as humble, dependent children as well. So we see in this first section, the disciples tried to take a, create a system of hierarchy where there's an inner circle and an outer circle. And what happens? Anytime someone makes a hierarchy, they always try to go up it. You ever notice that? If there's ever somebody creates an inner circle and an outer circle, nobody creates that and then is on the outer circle. Everybody creates that and is in the inner circle, right? Because they want to move up. They create the hierarchy to move up, um, up. And this is the opposite of taking the lowest place. And what happens is the disciples, in their attempt to create this hierarchy, they're tripping other childlike followers of Jesus. This is a grave error. And the disciples are trying to climb high. And what we find is the disciples are high enough to trip other people up. So, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for our church culture here at Redeeming Hope? Well, the first thing is there is no celebrity at Redeeming Hope. To create an inner circle and an outer circle or to create a hierarchy, there's always got to be someone at the top. There's always got to be someone at the center. There's got to be a celebrity that people are trying to get close to, right? That's what creates an inner circle. And so we're not in the business here at Redeeming Hope of making rock, rock stars. <laughs> like we don't want that. It causes people to trip up. And they want to get up the ladder too. They want to get closer, right? And, and so this is why as, as pastors, 
Derek and I, we want to make ourselves available. We want to open up our lives to you. We want you to know that we struggle. We break fingers and we get in car accidents and, you know, like, like we're normal people. We're not in the business of making rock stars. Because when you make a celebrity, this is what gets to the second point, there's no hierarchy at Redeeming Hope. When you make a celebrity, then there creates a hierarchy, right? Who is closer to that person? Who's closer to that person who's God's anointed, who's preaching, and everybody's up on the stage and you're looking. Whoever can get closer to that person so we can get a little bit of their power. And you see, this is the great thing is we are all underneath the great shepherd Jesus. We're all underneath him. He is the lead pastor of Redeeming Hope. And Pastor Derek and I are just simply under shepherds underneath Jesus, right? And Derek has this great analogy, um, and he's used it before in our gatherings, where he talks about like, you know, in a traditional culture, it's like kind of like a hierarchical structure, a church. Like you have your members, and you have your maybe small group leaders, and maybe you have your, your deacons if you're in the Baptist church, or you have your elders, you have your senior pastor, you know. And like, we actually want to encourage you. We want you to go right to Jesus. And actually our job as pastors is to encourage and foster your connection with the Lord, first and foremost. That's why we talk about abiding a lot. That's why we talk about reading the scriptures and spending time with Jesus. And, and we, actually, we actually want to give away what we have. We want to give away power, give away authority. Why? Because we want you to listen to Jesus. And our job as under-shepherds of Jesus is to facilitate your connection with the great shepherd. So that's what our role as pastors here is at Redeeming Hope, is to help you follow Jesus. And our job is to guide and care for you as you follow him. And that leads us to maybe another way that we can apply this idea of that there are kind of, in the take the low place, you don't trip others up. In a family, everyone has a role and everyone has value. Now, let me be clear, certain roles have a higher level of authority because they have a higher level of responsibility, right? Like a pastor is charged to care for the flock because guess what? One day, Pastor Derek and I are going to stand before God. We're going to be held accountable for how we cared for this church family. So that means that we have to have a level of authority to care, but we want to use that authority to connect you with the Lord, to push you towards Jesus, to help you follow him. But here's the deal. No position in our church has greater value than another. Like I said, we are, our value is equal before God because it's his empowerment of us to do so. So what we see is the dangers of distraction as we follow Jesus can happen from what's outside of us with other people creating that hierarchical structure to try to trip up the little children following Jesus. We need to be like the little children following after Jesus. In the lowest place, you avoid tripping others. Right? So finally, we see, in the lowest place, your faith is preserved. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is a difficult passage that's coming up. It's a little complex. We have to get a couple levels underneath. But Jesus is saying the dangers to your discipleship, the dangers to following me, can happen outside of you, but they can also happen inside of you, too. Look with me at verse 43. Jesus says, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where, the worm does, where, the, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
Side note, the only one who talks about hell more than anybody else in the Bible is Jesus. Jesus talks more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. And so let me add first off a disclaimer, all right? Jesus is not encouraging you to cut off your hand or pluck out your eye, okay? I just need to be really clear on that, all right? When you leave here, don't get a meat cleaver, all right? Let me just be 100% clear. He's not calling you to mutilate your bodies. Jesus is offering hyperbole, okay? And he also says this elsewhere in the Bible. He says, if anyone would follow me, he must hate his father and mother and brother. That doesn't mean he wants you to hate your father and your mother and brother. Clearly, he doesn't say that. He says, walk in love. What he's saying is your love for me should outpace your love of anything else so that it looks like hate compared to how much you love me. Does that make sense? Right? So he's not actually saying, cut your hands off. What he's saying is, is that your temporary sin, your temporary distractions are nothing compared to the life of God. They're nothing compared to it. And they're not worth it at the end of the day. It's so much better in that sense to cut off your hand and go into heaven than not. That's what he's saying. So he's not actually encouraging you to cut off your hand. He's speaking in hyperbole here, saying it's not worth it. The temporary satisfaction of sin is not worth it. And so what happens? I think this teaches us something about what happens when we start to take the lowest place, when we serve others from the lowest place. What it does is it actually highlights our brokenness. It actually highlights the areas where we're we're struggling. And then what it does is that it encourages us to struggle with our sin, to fight it by God's grace and by God's power. But then I think this teaches us something about when we take the lowest place. Our struggle with sin oftentimes leaves us with a limp. It leaves us with weakness. And this is actually how God wants us to be. Like, when you truly struggle and fight your sin and your natural tendencies of your own heart, what that does is you have to expose it, right? In community, you have to expose it. You have to confess it. You have to say, I'm struggling with this. And guess what? That can make you at times open to criticism. That can at times, like, it's a struggle. You walk with a limp when you truly fight your sin. And it's okay because guess what? We're limping together as a family. We're following Jesus together. And when we're all humble, we're all confessing our sin, we're fighting our sin by God's grace, we gain life and life is so much better. And look at what Jesus said in just a a chapter beforehand. He says this in Mark 8, 36. He says, this is my dad's life first. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what can man give in return for his soul? And what Jesus says is we have two options. We can enter life or we we can live in hell. That's what he's saying. And so he's saying we can enter into a new way of living in the here and now and in the future as well. And he says it's not easy, right? That's what he's saying. He's using this analogy to say it is not easy to fight your sin. But it's that long road of picking up our cross and following him. And what is that? We have to go through the cross to get to the resurrection power of the empty tomb. We have to follow Jesus to Golgotha to get to the resurrection power of an empty tomb. And that's what happens when we fight our sin by God's grace. And the alternative, as Jesus says multiple times here, is hell. Now, that word is called Gehenna. And what's interesting is hell is talking about what we would understand hell to be, eternal separation from God. But did you know that also it was a literal place? Like when people would hear this, when they hear the word Gehenna, which is that Greek word, It was actually a trash heap outside of the city of Jerusalem. So they'd take all their trash and they would burn it. 
Now, my military friends know about this, especially overseas when you would have to burn your trash. And you can't, there's no place to go, right? And it's an awful smell. It's a terrible place to be. You don't want to be downwind of the trash heap when it's burning, okay? And that's what Jesus is talking about. He's using Gehenna, the actual literal place, to represent this is what life is like apart from me. And it's not worth it. It's not a place you go hang out and sip a cool drink. Like, it's not good, all right? It's not good. And so he's talking about this is what eternity is separated from me. And this is what's interesting, is that when you take the lowest place, and when you're talking about when you look at your own sin and brokenness, when you take the lowest place, you actually don't have that far to fall. That's what's so helpful about walking in humility. Because guess what? You see your sin and your brokenness with increasing clarity. Like the people in my life that I find are the most humble are the most aware of their sin, are most aware of their struggles. Like they just freely acknowledge it. And do you want to know what's great about that is you can be free from other people's criticism. You know, when somebody walks up to you and say, you're ugly, right? I actually had somebody say that to me in high school. But when somebody walks up to you and says you're ugly, you know what's great about that? Is that in light of the gospel, when you take the lowest place, you can tell them, you don't know the half of it. (laughs) You think I'm ugly. You can't see inside my heart. You can't see my heart motivation behind the things I do. You can't see the things I struggle with on a daily. You're right. I am ugly in ways that you'll never even know about. You know, isn't that great? Isn't that awesome? Like other people, there's, there's actually a nugget of truth in whatever anybody says about you. Hey, you're prideful. Yeah, you're right. Guess what? That's the first step of humility when you acknowledge that you're prideful. You're like, you know what? You're not worthy. You don't deserve to be here. You're right. I don't. I'm super jazzed to be here. I don't deserve it at all. You know, you walk into an honors class in high school and they're like, you're dumb. You don't deserve to be here. You're like, yeah, actually, I'm pretty excited to be here. This is great. You see, that's childlike faith. That's taking the lowest place. That's seeing our own sin and brokenness. And that makes us impervious to other people's criticism because we can always agree with them. And when you agree with somebody, when they criticize you, you take the power from them. It's great. And then you can just walk free and say, actually, you're right. And you don't know the half of it. But Jesus has saved me and I get all of his goodness. So take that. (laughs) Right? So here's the deal. We're talking about this idea of taking the lowest place. We remove the hierarchy, right? There's no inner circles. We, we want to avoid tripping up others, right? We don't want to be that person that's too high. We end up tripping up others and we put our foot out with the childlike faith of the people walking along us. We want to be like children, take a low place. And then we want to fight and cut out our sin by taking the low place, by saying, yeah, actually, whatever you say about me is probably right in some way, shape, or form, and Jesus loves me in spite of that. How do we serve from the lowest place? How do we do this? How do we choose life? Now, I'm going to read you two verses that are going to be super weird. All right? I'm just going to be straight up with you. It's going to talk about salt and fire. And there's some weird stuff coming in, but we're going to figure it out. And I actually think Jesus tells us how we do this in the last two verses here in Mark chapter 9. Let's look here. We're preserved. This is what it says. So this is where it ends. I just got to read you. It's talking about Better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell where, the, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Okay, he just finished talking about this, right? But then he immediately goes and says this word right here. For everyone, for everyone will be salted with fire. What in the world is he saying here? 
Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And then he left there and went to Judea. <laughs> what in the world's going on here? All right, stick with me. Um, we're going to get there. Now remember, in G- Jesus is sitting in Capernaum. He's teaching as these prideful, arrogant disciples. Everything's just like going over their head. They have no clue what's going on, okay? And Jesus is talking about following me, choosing life is better. It's going to be harder, but it's going to be better because the alternative is a fire pit on the edge of town. Like that's what it's going to be like. So Jesus' mind's eye is thinking about fire, right? Because he said Gehenna. He said the unquenchable fires of hell, the trash burn heap outside. Now I want you to get in the mind of a first century rabbi, a first century student of the Old Testament. When they're thinking fire, what else would they be thinking about? Audio Daily Double. Anybody? Sacrifice. That's exactly what he was thinking about. So he says, you can be, don't be in the trash heap. What he's saying is, you can be a living sacrifice. And what did they do to sacrifices? I didn't know this. And I didn't think we were going to Leviticus today, but we're totally busting out Leviticus. Okay, chapter two of Leviticus. Let's hit it. This is what it says. For you shall season all your grain offerings, what? With salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all of your offerings, you shall offer salt. So Jesus, thinking about the fires of hell, the burning trash heap, saying, don't choose that, choose life. Even if you have to cut off your hand, it's going to be okay. It's worth it. And then he immediately flips it. Salt was representing the covenant and the promise of God to preserve his people. That's why they threw salt on all their offerings. Now let's look at a commentary here. I just did a small quote to explain this. Salt was something that could not be destroyed by fire or time or by any other means in antiquity. To add salt to the offering was a reminder that the worshiper was in an eternal covenant relationship with his God. This meant that God would never forsake him. My friend, salt represents the thing that can't be destroyed. And the salted sacrifices under the heat of the offering, it reminded the people of God that he has a covenant with them that he will do the work to preserve. And remember, that's what salt does. It's a preserver, right? So Jesus, you can, again, let's look back now. He's talking about don't choose the fire of hell. Don't choose the trash peat. The trash heap on the edge of town. He's saying is choose life, and you can even picture this Rabbi Jesus in his mind immediately going to the altar, immediately going to the fires of sacrifice. He's saying everyone who follows me in this childlike faith will be preserved, just like the Old Testament covenant promised. Ah, you won't be destroyed. You won't be at the trash heap at the edge of town. You won't be going to hell. You're going to be going to heaven. Why? It's not about your work. It's not about what you're doing, but it's God that's salting you. It's God that's preserving you. It's God that's leading you into freedom. It's God that's leading you into holiness. It's his work, not yours. He's the one that's preserving you. So all of a sudden, this random reference to salt has deep meaning and significance now when we look at it in light of how Jesus was, was, was communicating it. Everyone who follows Jesus, these little children with this childlike faith, they are preserved. They are salted. And instead of the fires of hell, you can experience God's faithfulness 
as you see your whole life as a living sacrifice to God. That's what happens. He's the one preserving you. Now, what does this mean? How? We've got to ask the how question just one more time. Okay, just indulge me. Now, I've been talking for a while. It's almost done. Hebrews 10. How? How do we live a life salted? How do we live a life preserved? What does that look like to take the lowest places we serve others? Well, my friends, Hebrews 10 helps us. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. My friends, the Old Testament sacrifices were only a hint. The salt didn't do anything. It was looking forward to the ultimate preserver of our faith, Jesus, who is both our sacrifice and the priest administering the sacrifice. Jesus is the one who's perfecting you. Jesus is the one who's working in you. It says right here, by a single offering, he's already perfected you and you are being made holy over a lifetime. This is what sanctification is, the process of becoming holy. It's not becoming something you're not. It's becoming something you are already created to be. The moment you choose to follow him, he says you are perfect in his eyes. Now we still sin. We still struggle. He says you gotta, st- you, you gotta fight this. Why? Because we are becoming something that God has already created us to be over a lifetime. He's already done the work. Now, bonus content, Bible nerd for a second. Do you know that in the temple, there was something that was never done in the temple? There was never a place to sit in the temple, ever. They did not have a chair in the temple. Why? Because the moment the priest walks into the temple, his job is to work. And then when he would go off shift, another priest would walk in and his job was to work. And every priest for hundreds of years would be in the temple offering sacrifices, literally, continuously, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the people. Why didn't they sit down? Because their work was never done. And then Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus makes one sacrifice for all time. And what does it say? He sat down at the right hand of God. He's the only priest in centuries, in millennia, that sat down because he was done with his work. The work is done with Jesus. This is why we can take the lowest place. And guess what? He is perfecting in you this work that he's already done. He's working this out in you over the course of your lifetime. And when you follow Jesus to the lowest place, there's no hierarchy. There's no inner circles. Why? Because Jesus became the sacrifice for all people, including you and the person you disagree with (laughs) and the person you think is on the outs. He's the sacrifice for all. So there's no hierarchy. Then, when you follow Jesus to the lowest place, you remove the danger of tripping up others. Why? Because Jesus says, let the little children come to me. Literally, it says elsewhere in the scriptures that little children are trying to get to Jesus within a crowd of people. And the disciples pushed them away. And Jesus said, no, you guys get out of the way. Let the little children come to me. When you have a childlike faith, a dependency on Jesus... He clears the lane for you. He says, come, come close, come abide with me and I will give you everything you need. 
And then not only that, as you're in proximity to Jesus, he removes the inside dangers of sin and brokenness. Why? Because he already perfected you. And in your lifetime, you are learning what perfection looks like. He's inviting you into a new way of living. He invites you to live out the life he's already secured for you. That's what holiness is. That's what sanctification is. It's, doing some, it's living out of the reality that Jesus has already secured for you. So, I think about serving. Um, Rachel and I, you know, have been, as I mentioned, there's some things that have gone on with the car accident, the broken finger, and all these other things. And so we were kind of talking, we've been praying, and there's an analogy that God has brought up in my head. Okay, so we have a, a 50-gallon hot water tank. We just have a normal hot gallon, uh, 50-gallon hot water tank in our garage, right? So it's got to keep it hot. It's only got 50 gallons, right? And so often, I think when I serve, and there's different people have different tanks. They're born with different tanks. They're born with different skill sets. They're born with different things, right? Some people have a five-gallon tank. Some people have a 50-gallon tank. Some people have a 2,000-gallon tank. Well, they can serve a lot and do a lot, and they don't get worn out. But this is the analogy. The analogy is that Jesus is your tankless water heater. He's your gas-powered, tankless water heater. And every day I wake up, and I've got a valve. And actually, I think it's hourly sometimes. I've got a valve. And my valve is defaulted to Josh's water tank. And I don't know if you've ever run yourself a bath when you have a hot water tank. But after a while, the hot water goes out, guys. (laughs) And then it gets cold, right? And then everybody else that takes a shower after you has to take cold showers, all right? Like, because, because... I have a choice. I can default to Josh's hot water tank. Or I can turn it to the tankless, gas-powered water heater of God's grace. That never runs dry. And then I don't take the credit for anything that I do. I don't take credit for the ministry. I don't take credit for the successes. I don't have to worry about the failures. Why? Because when I'm serving from the lowest place, I'm serving in dependency on God. I'm serving, relying on his power, on his authority, not my own. And when I do that, there's no inner circles. I'm not tripping up others. And I'm fighting my sin. And I'm following Jesus. We go and serve from the lowest place. Why? Because Jesus went to the lowest place for you and me. So let's go low. Let's go low where Jesus is and serve from there. My friends, all of this is possible because of the work of Jesus on the cross. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.